0: Today's episode is brought to you by Alice Miller's More Miracle Than Bird, a sweeping debut that charts the love story of two of literature's most fascinating characters, Georgie Hyde Lees and her husband, W.B. Yeats. It is, says Catherine Dion, a luminous novel about the women involved with the early 20th century's most notable men poets, offering a fresh portrayal of the women's brilliant complexity. Ambition, artifice, and adventure draw them through a contingent world unsettled by spirits, mediums, the war dead, and soon-to-be dead. But Miller is up to more than telling a story of these fascinating lives. More Miracle Than Bird makes a sly and disturbing inquiry into how art truly gets made and to whom it belongs. More Miracle Than Bird is out now from Tin House and available from your favorite independent bookstore. So back when the pandemic first hit and the radio station shut down for in-studio recording, figuring out remote recording was mostly a stress and a sadness. What equipment would be best? How much money to spend? How to navigate sharing my wife Lucy's office space where she was suddenly teaching all her French classes remotely? how to work around my neighbor's love of his leaf blower. And perhaps most at the forefront of my mind, a certain grief that I wouldn't be having these conversations with these writers together in the same room. But back in April, I did do one thing that was a gesture toward making an unwanted situation into something new and exciting. And that was making myself a short wish list from the writers I wouldn't normally get to interview when the show was in person only. Writers from other countries and from other languages, but also writers who, for whatever reason, rarely or never toured through Portland, Oregon. I made this list to fill out the remaining four or five open slots that I still had for 2020. And the first person on my list was today's guest, N.K. Jemison. Little did I know when I reached out to her publicist back in March that I would be having this conversation at the same time the country and the world at large would be asking many of the same questions as Jemison's book, The City We Became. A book that doesn't just have an uncanny resonance with the pandemic, but even more so is directly engaged with how white supremacy wields its power structurally and what a battle against it might look like and the challenges of finding true solidarity across legitimate differences to not only fight the battle, but to have a real chance of winning it. On that note, N.K. Jemisin adds a reading to the bonus archive from Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of Great American Cities from a chapter called The Self-Destruction of Diversity. To find out how to become a supporter of the show, where you can get access to bonus audio from not only N.K. Jemisin, but Ted Chang, Carmen Maria Machado, Marlon James and others or receive copies of Ursula K. Le Guin's conversations on writing or to become an early reader for Tin House books receiving 12 books over the course of a year months before they're available to the general public. You can head over to patreon.com/between the covers and check it all out. Enjoy today's program with NK Jemison. is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the novelist and short story writer N.K. Jemisin. Author of eight previous novels, two short story collections, and a novella, John Scalzi calls Jemisin the most important speculative fiction writer of her generation, and Wired Magazine calls her the finest writer of the fantastic of our time, and in light of Ursula K. Le Guin's recent passing, her worthiest successor. Jemison's first novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, the first book in the Inheritance Trilogy, was shortlisted for the James Tiptree Jr. Award, nominated for the Nebula, the Hugo, and the World Fantasy Award, and winner of the Locus Award for Best First Novel. It was her second trilogy, however, the Broken Earth Trilogy, that made history, where Jemisin became not only the first black writer to win a Hugo Award for Best Novel, but also the first writer to win three Best Novel Hugos in a row, one for each of the Broken Earth Trilogy books. The third book in the trilogy, The Stone Sky, also won the Nebula for Best Novel and the Locus Award for Best Fantasy. N.K. Jemisin's short fiction has been published in Clark's World, Tor, Popular Science, Idiomancer, and Abyss and Apex, and her latest story collection, How Long Till Black Future Month, won the American Library Association Alex Award in 2019. For three years, Jemisin also helmed and penned a science fiction column in the New York Times Book Review called Otherworldly, And she has recently been writing a new Green Lantern for DC Comics called Far Sector with Jamal Campbell. N.K. Jemisin is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, the first in a new trilogy of urban fantasy called The City We Became, published by Orbit Books. With starred reviews from both Booklist and Kirkus, Neil Gaiman says of The City We Became, it's a glorious fantasy set in that most imaginary of cities, New York. It's inclusive in all the best ways and manages to contain both Borges and Lovecraft and its fabric, but the unique voice and viewpoint are Jemison's alone. Rebecca Roanhorse adds, The city we became is a wonderfully inventive love letter to New York City that spans the multiverse. A big middle finger to Lovecraft with a lot of heart, creativity, smarts, and humor— a timely and audacious allegorical tale for our times, this book is all these things and more. Finally, NPR calls Jemison's latest book a love letter, a celebration, and an expression of hope and belief that a city and its people can and will stand up to darkness, will stand up to fear, and will, when called to, stand up for each other. Welcome to Between the Covers, N.K. Jemison.
1: No, thank you.
0: So The City We Became is is the first book of yours set in our world in the sense that it takes place in the contemporary United States and more specifically in a New York City that in in a lot of ways we recognize. But the book's story is organized around an idea that some might find fantastical and, and others not at all, that cities are particularly unique systems, that like an organism, they have life cycles and conditions in which they thrive, and they can also be killed. So can you orient us before we do a deeper dive into the book about this theory of cities from, from which the story emerges?
1: It's not even really a theory. It's just, you know, that part is reality. Um, cities obviously can be founded, uh, obviously go through changes, uh, periods of growth, peaks, Um, periods of decline and decay and and frequently cities are destroyed by natural disasters or, um, you know, political upheavals and things of that nature. So, um, you know, they're they're like all systems in that systems emulate life, but then there's also the fact that life is itself uh, a system of organization um, you know, we, we found that you put amino acids in, uh, the right kind of chaotic conditions and order emerges from that. Um, or a form of organization emerges from that and sometimes a form of, of entropy. Um, and so that's just, you know, I, I, all I'm doing is really literalizing history in that sense. Um, and the, the speculative element of it is, is simply that the cities talk and have, uh, a spokesperson or a spokes voice, um, for lack of a better description. Um, and, and, you know, that an individual human being can embody some element of that city or that city's power. Um, I, I think that's the only real speculative piece. Well, that plus, <laughs> um, uh, you know, vaguely Cthulhu like, uh, monster from beyond, but yes. Yeah. And who's to say that's not real too?
0: right? Immediately without orientation, we're dropped into an urgent situation in media res. our Our protagonist, a poor, hungry, black, queer man, finds himself central to a battle, a battle that's somehow both supernatural and very familiar to to save a city. and he's he's called to be valuable essentially to a city that doesn't really value him. He navigates microaggression after microaggression in those first pages of the prologue and finds himself in a battle with a monster that's very fittingly called Megacop. But the enemy of cities, the enemy of cities being born fully into their potentials as places, places that incorporate newness and difference, this enemy takes many forms, but most notably the form of what you call the woman in white, So I was hoping you could talk to us about the forces of the universe that amass against the birth of cities in general, and then dial down to talk about the woman in white and the way she personifies and sort of executes the will of this force.
1: Some of this I can't talk about because it's a trilogy and there will be a lot more exploration of the nature of the woman in white and the, the... Origins and so on. Um, I'll talk a lot more about that later. Um, but, uh, the woman in white is basically just, you know, representing the forces that are arrayed to destroy cities. Um, in my experience and observation, those are, those are homogenizing forces. Those are things that, um, strip away the uniqueness and individuality and, and culture, um, that becomes unique to cities. Um, You know, we've seen it in New York in the sense of, you know, the New York accent is kind of fading away. Um, There really isn't, um, you know, you've seen old movies where, you know, you've seen that very stereotypical Brooklyn accent and things like that. Excuse me. Um, And that's that's kind of gone because a lot of the people that spoke it had to move away. They can't afford it here anymore. Um, And the people who are coming in are coming in a lot of cases from the Midwest. So the the accent is flattening. Um, That's just a simple example. But um, the woman in white appears in various forms throughout the book, most frequently in the, she, she sort of takes over the body of an existing white woman who happens to be near the protagonists. Um, she can use anyone with a certain kind of, uh, ideological inclination, um, as a conduit for her will. I mean, she's not limited to white women. It's just that that's what we see. Um, but uh, and she is also not limited in her form. Um, we see throughout the course of the story that she um, has many bodies. That she, uh, in a lot of ways, is the same entity, even though we see multiple things attacking the protagonist throughout the story. Um, but basically, and, and I've talked about this in other um, settings in in that. Uh, the woman in white, in a lot of ways, is meant to personify uh, the, the social justice uh, concept, encapsulation of whiteness. And whiteness being um, a created thing, a constructed thing. Um, in Europe, uh, there were many ethnic groups. Uh, they, they all tended to have white skin, but they certainly didn't think of each other as the same group of people. Um, you know, ask any Irish person how they feel about being lumped in with British people, and you know you, you're gonna you're gonna get a <laughs> an interesting response depending on who you talk to. Um, the French and the Germans never really particularly liked each other. You know, yadda, shmada. Um, But in the United States and in other parts of the world that are kind of uh, descended from colonialism, um, there was a concerted effort to push whiteness in lieu of the, the ethnic diversity that European immigrants actually kind of naturally brought. Um, and the end result of it these days is a kind of flattening and homogenization. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many of my white friends I've talked to who are like, you know, we don't have any, any culture. And I'm like, that's horseshit. Um, but they're like, you know, I don't have any particular, um, you know, food culture. I don't have any particular, I don't speak the language of my ancestors who immigrated. I'm not sure what ethnicity my, my ancestors who immigrated possessed. Um, and, and so on. I mean, that is just, that's the nature of how uh, colonialism has manifested in the United States. Um, you know, the way to... To make sure that there is common cause uh, between the the wealthy white upper classes that need to control the country and the masses of uh, middle and lower class white people who need to help keep the brown people in line um, is to kind of you know create this culture of of sameness and homogeneity, um, and that is that is what we call whiteness. Um, and it doesn't mean necessarily that all white people are bad. I mean, I've seen some interpretations of it that you know of the the book or reviews of the book that kind of go there. But you know that's that's up to those folks and how they want to interpret it. Um, but end of day, you know, whiteness in and of itself, is harmful to those ethnic groups as well as it is to people of color um, because of that flattening, because of that homogenization. And when you've got a city like New York, where you've got wave after wave of immigrants coming in, where you've got... Uh, free black people and and free Irish people forming villages and working together to try and kind of create new labor laws, or at least that's how it was in the 1800s until that kind of got purposefully broken up. Um, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that I'm kind of addressing. This is what created the city. The diversity of New York is what makes New York as unique and interesting as it is. And as we see the current wave of gentrification coming in, Um, gentrification is a flattening, homogenizing force. It is a force that consists, that that takes lots of different forms, um, but frequently uh, shows up in some of the forms that we see in the novel of uh, there is a dynamic that we see a lot in New York City of white women coming into neighborhoods of people of color um, and calling the cops whenever they feel vaguely threatened. Um, We saw an example of that just last week um, with uh, the the gentleman in Central Park who asked a white woman to put her dog on a leash and she called the police and, and basically lied in front of him um, on camera and said, you know, that the guy was threatening her when he wasn't anywhere near her, was just asking her to put her dog on a leash. Um, but she was perfectly willing to b- deploy a dangerous force um, that could have killed that man. Um, because she didn't want to obey the rules, um, and this is an example of you know kind of a pattern that we've seen again and again and again in American cities, um, and so that's that's basically what it is.
0: Well, it's interesting because the that I thought of that very incident in Central Park between Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper, who are not related, the mm-hmm. the black bird watcher and the white dog walker, because because the white the woman in white she she does animate people in new york to do similar things there is a literally a person who calls uh the police on people sitting in a park in new york in in the city we became there's a there's a foundation the better new york foundation which sounds like a a benign or benevolent organization but is actually behind a lot of the gentrification happening in new york that the woman in white is manifesting um but i don't think it would be a spoiler for us to um say since it happens in the opening pages that this this narrator, this this representative of New York City, uh, who discovers himself as a as an avatar for New York. Something goes awry in his battle against Mega Cop. and the responsibility falls on the five people who are the unknowing avatars of the five boroughs to dis- mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. discover their calling and find each other and this is based on a on a Japanese anime forum called the Sentai and I was hoping you could talk about the plot structure and the nod to this forum as a way to organize the story
1: mostly it was just me trying to have some fun after the broken earth uh, trilogy which um, was, was one of the ways that I kind of expressed a lot of the stress that I was feeling over the Ferguson uprising. And here we go, a fucking again. Um, anyway, um, so, yeah, basically, the, the, it's not that something really goes wrong um, in the fight between the avatar of New York and and the the enemy. It's just that New York is too big to encompass a single person. And, um, so yeah, the boroughs, uh, rise, the boroughs in New York, for those who are not familiar with New York, um, each borough of New York is a city in and of itself. Um, Brooklyn alone is bigger than most American cities. Um, Queens spatially is bigger than most American cities, Uh, Brooklyn in terms of population, Queens in terms of just sheer size, um, and, uh, you know, even Staten Island is, is half a million people, which is bigger than the town that I partially grew up in. I grew up in New York city and Mobile, Alabama. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people don't really understand that, like when you've got a city that's big, you've really got a collection of smaller cities. In some cases, cities that grew together, like Boston, um, just through sheer proximity, um, or in some cases, it's just like each neighborhood of the city um, back in the days when New York was kind of being founded, because there is so much segregation and and um, I don't even know what to call it, clannishness, in, in uh, a lot of the ways that New York has always operated, um, each borough developed its own very, very unique culture. Um, and so, yeah, the, the individual people who become the avatars all have to work together because it's still one city, but, you know, end of day, New York is a bunch of squabbling, um, <laughs> very angry people. Uh, so that seemed, that seemed fitting. Um, the whole Sentai thing just seemed like a, a fun way to kind of put it together, um, People who aren't familiar with Sentai, if you've ever heard of Power Rangers, you've heard of Sentai. Um, So basically, with Sentai shows, it means five-man team. Um, You've got five people who have to come together. Frequently, they they wear color-coded clothing to kind of designate their... They're vague personalities, like the person in red is the leader and uh, very hot-headed sometimes and yada, yada, yada. Um, The person in blue tends to be a little bit more cool, the planner, da-da-da-da-da. You know, that was just me being silly. Uh, But they they all have to come together despite their differences um, and fight as one in order to defeat the evil monster. So that was really it.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking to N.K. Jemison about her latest book, The City We Became. It feels like one of the lenses through which we can look at this book is is as a book that both evokes and interrogates stereotypes and the violence that stereotypes can enact both by commission and omission. If it, it feels like you're doing both simultaneously, giving us something familiar like the Sentai Forum, which has a somewhat predictable way it unfolds as a narrative but then when we least expect it after you've lulled us into some sort of familiarity pulling the rug out from under these expectations and i i I, I wanted (laughs) to
1: talking about spoilers in this podcast or no
0: we probably well maybe no yeah okay what do you think
1: (laughs) uh i mean you know your readers better than I, your listeners better than i let's
0: not let's not let's not name the things that you've pulled near the end that you've pulled the rug out from under okay But I want to talk about the question of stereotypes and the use of stereotypes um, around the uh, questions of representation of New York City itself as a city. Because on the one hand, each of the five characters who are the avatars of the five boroughs, they do indeed represent characteristics and attitudes and stereotypes that we come to expect from those boroughs. But on the other hand, the five avatars of the city seem to be interrogating media representations of the cities. The The five avatars are four women and one man, uh, four people of color, indigenous, South Asian, black, and one white person. The avatars are not all citizens. The avatars are queer and straight. And these representations feel like a far cry from the typical things you'd see on TV, like friends or sex in the city. And so I guess I was hoping that you could talk about this balancing act of delivering what we expect and lulling us into perhaps the stereotype itself and then um, flipping the script.
1: Well, what you're asking me here is how do you write? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's not really, uh, it's not really a thing I can articulate easily. Yeah. Um, I will say that I was explicitly thinking about Friends and Seinfeld and all these other shows Um, and girls and just endless iterations of New York that don't look anything like the New York that I've lived my life in. Um, And granted, I am a black woman. Uh, My experience of New York is probably going to be very different from that of uh, Lena, whatever her name is that made um, girls, you know, so so my experiences are are obviously going to be different, but I mean, we aren't seeing those experiences represented on TV to the same degree. So, um, So I decided to write the New York that I know and the New York that I know is overtly queer and overtly immigrant. And, you know, there I like the 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 percentage of um, different groups of people that you see in New York City. Uh, is is not represented in our television of New York City. Right. So I deliberately decided that I was going to go with those less shown um, but equally valid and equally numerous um, representations and, 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 I guess, uh, proportions of New York City um, and, and go from there. Um, so you know, it's not um, to 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 a degree there were stereotypes involved. Obviously, like Iceland, Staten Island, um, is coming from a very conservative family. Uh, she is herself very conservative, very racist. Um, and that's that's Staten Island. I mean, Staten <laughs> Island is like the red state of New York City. Um, and like I mean that literally. It's it's the one borough that kind of consistently votes Republican. Um, they've voted to secede from New York a few times and never managed to actually do it. Um and so, you know, this is it's it's always been the kind of standout from the rest of the city in a lot of ways. And so I made Island. Literally stand out um, in that. She doesn't want to join the rest of the avatars She doesn't want to be particularly part of the group and so on Um, but that applies to Nearly every chunk of New York in some way or another Um, You know the Bronx isn't particularly interested in being part of New York City either Um, Each of the 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 boroughs of New York City are perfectly aware of the fact that they are cities in and of themselves And that they can stand just fine on their own (laughs) so um, you know it, it it kind of is necessity that forces them together, but on the other hand, um when you mess with New York, you do get the whole city tending to respond to that. Mm. Staten Island included. Um, and so that's that's really all I wanted to touch on.
0: Well, well perhaps the the biggest way you grapple with stereotypes and the violence of them is is your overt engagement with the master of of stereotype HP Lovecraft, where you both use and invert his tropes and I, I was hoping for listeners who aren't aware of lovecraft you could perhaps orient us to lovecraft in the world of sci-fi fantasy and it, and its history and then and then maybe touch on um lovecraft's uh connection to new york specifically
1: anybody that's familiar with lovecraft already knows this so yeah i i uh, in the book i i talk explicitly about the fact that lovecraft Um, saw the energy of cities, saw the diversity of cities. Um, It's clear from his writing, um, if you read any of his pieces about New York City, um, such as The Horror at Red Hook, that's a short story. Anybody can find it. It's probably free online in a lot of places. Um, If you want to judge for yourself, go read that story and see how he depicted um, the people of Red Hook, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn that, um, has had large numbers of immigrants over its history, large numbers of people of color, um, even to the present right now, it's kind of like best known for Ikea, but, um, anyway, um, but so when you, when you read Lovecraft, you see that he recognizes some, some metaphysical quintessential energy Um, In the diversity that cities um, produce, the languages, the foods, all of that. And his reaction is abject horror. His reaction is, um, there's something horrible happening here that is a threat to white people um, that needs to be stopped. Um, these people are somehow degenerate um, they are they are not human like the rest of us uh, they are doing harm to us by their very existence and by their continued you know being allowed to operate and and function unimpeded um and you know so so all I basically did was was also I, I feel the same energy of cities most people who live in cities feel that energy um, I think that energy is a good thing um, and I just decided to write it as, well, what if the energy of cities that Lovecraft was terrified of was actually the thing that was keeping us safe from the stuff that he thought was great. Um, so that that was kind of it. Um, Lovecraft, for those that don't really understand his context in science fiction and fantasy, um, he's considered the father of modern fantasy. I, I don't particularly agree with that that interpretation, but there are a lot of people who are very invested in that idea um, to the degree that uh, the, the World Fantasy Awards uh, for many years, um, until about maybe two or three years ago, um, their, their award statue was a bust of H.P. Lovecraft's head. Um, and many authors complained about that, China Miéville, most notably, um, and Nnedi Okorafor, um, who is a science fiction writer, um, Nigerian American, um, won the award for her phenomenal "Who Fears Death" a few years ago. Um, and when she won the award, she wrote an essay, which you can find online um, if you just Google Nnedi Okorafor and Lovecraft. Um, but she wrote a, a, a powerful essay online, talking about how it felt. To win this award, uh, this this honor, and then um, be given the head of a person who would despise her um, and despise everything that she's writing about and everything that she's trying to do. Um, And as a result of the controversy that kind of came out of um, that objection, uh, after years of back and forth and resistance, um, the World Fantasy Awards people changed the award statue. Now it's a lovely tree. Um, but you know, it took years of discussion and during those years of discussion, you know, you, you just saw science fiction writer after science fiction writer. And I, I use that as a lump term for all people in the, in the genre, but, um, you just saw writer after writer and personality after personality coming out and saying, well, sure he was racist, but, um, and there's just not a good ending to that damn sentence, um, and Lovecraft, even for a man of his time, for people who are like, oh, he was just a man of his time. No, no. People in his time were like, oh God, this man is like exceptionally racist. Um, and you know, I've never really bought into the man of his time, uh, argument anyway, because in every time of American history, there's always been someone who was opposed to racism. There have always been anti-racists. Right. Um, so that's a choice that people have made anyway. Um, so that was basically where I was coming from with that.
0: And it's noteworthy, I think, that China Mieville, someone who uses all, who is very ensconced in weird fiction, which is associated with Lovecraft and uses a lot of tentacled cephalopod mm-hmm. creatures, was very opposed to the Lovecraftian legacy in the World Fantasy Awards, too, I thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, no one objects to to acknowledging Lovecraft's impact on the genre. I mean, I, I acknowledge that that impact as well. I mean, lots of people like writing about creepy tentacled old ones, entities, dark gods from beyond, whatever you want to call <laughs> it. Um, it's, it's interesting material. But this isn't necessarily something that you want to treat as, as an honor. You know, you have to recognize the fact that Lovecraft's material came from his hatred and fear of the other, um, his hatred and fear specifically of his fellow human beings. Um, he literally saw the people of Red Hook as as monsters, as something subhuman that was that was calling to something even worse and, and threatening all reality. I mean, this is you, you have to acknowledge the fact that. You know, as as powerful as this imagery is, it's powerful because it's driven by fear and hatred. Um, and that is that is something that we need to um, acknowledge in our society, that fear and hatred drive so much of it. Fear and hatred is the root of so much of American art. Um, and, you know, sure, you can acknowledge that you don't have to like, be like, but that's a great thing. Oh, right. Um, and that's, that's kind of what the head, um, making the, the, the bust his, his head a bust. Uh, um, Oh God, I'm tired now. I haven't had enough coffee. Um, but you know, that's kind of what making, uh, him as a symbol of the award implies is that, you know, the, that his fear, his hatred, his paranoia, um, was somehow a good thing. And is something that people who are, are performing well or, or doing good work in the genre should be honored to be recognized as a similar hate monger and, and frightened paranoid person. That's terrifying to me. Why? Like the idea that someone thought that that was a good idea. Whew. Anyway, fortunately they've changed
0: it. Well, when Daniel Jose older was on the show, um, who was one of the people behind the petition to change the yep. World Fantasy Award statue? We mm-hmm. talked about Lovecraft also. He wrote this piece, A Hundred Years of Weird Fear, on H.P. Lovecraft's literature of genealogical terror and talks about I, don't think Love- I read that. One. Hmm. Okay. It's, it's quite good. And he, he talks about how Lovecraft believed Asians didn't have souls, Black mm. people were childlike, half gorillas, Jews were a curse on humanity. But mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to read I want to read a little section of a letter that he quotes um, Mm. that Lovecraft wrote while he was living in Brooklyn not for the racism but for the language because um, the language is extreme in the in the it's verbosity and it's I'll just read it and let people hear it and then um, I want to talk to you about the way you use it yourself Um, so here he is describing Brooklyn and its inhabitants the organic things inhabiting that awful cesspool could not by any stretch of the imagination be called human. They were monstrous and nebulous adumbrations of the pithcanthropoid and amoebal, vaguely molded from some stinking viscous slime of the earth's corruption and slithering and oozing in and on the filthy streets or in and out of windows and doorways in a fashion suggestive of nothing but infesting worms or deep-sea unnameabilities. They, or the degenerate gelatinous fermentation of which they were composed, seemed to ooze, seep, and trickle through the gaping cracks in the horrible houses, and I thought of some avenue of cyclopean and unwholesome vats crammed to the vomiting point with gangrenous vileness and about to burst and inundate the world in one leprous cataclysm of semi-fluid rottenness. From that nightmare of perverse infection, I could not carry away the memory of any living face. The reason I I bring this up is because I think one of the joys of reading The City We Became is how you use these tropes for completely different ends because the woman in white, the mega cop, and the threat to the city of New York, like you've mentioned, they are described with the language that we just heard. They're oozing tentacled alien force that indeed evokes fear and disgust and dread but now that fear and disgust and dread is towards them these white tentacles these this white oozing homogenous alienness
1: Yeah, that's definitely where I was kind of going with that. Um, I actually have to kind of work on that, because in real life, I'm actually fascinated by cephalopods. I think they're cool. Um, And it's difficult for me to um, difficult for me to come up with language describing tentacled things as scary. Cause like Cthulhu isn't scary to me. Um, yeah. I'm just like, Oh, that poor man's got a squid on his face, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> poor giant man. <laughs> um, but uh, Anyway. That's um, true.
0: Cause cephalopods are amazing.
1: Yeah. Cephalopods are, you know, they are, they're, They are very alien in and of themselves, and they can be terrifying, I suppose, if you really pay attention to them. But, uh, you know, it's they've got those weird eyes and they've got beaks where they can bite you and yada yada. But they're also kind of cute and cool and and, and, like stunningly intelligent. Um, I don't eat. Uh, I am a giant fan of sushi and I was a giant fan of octopus sushi. And then once I kind of realized how intelligent they were, I've stopped eating them. Mm -hmm. Um, just because, you know, they're, they're past a certain point. You have to kind of just acknowledge that there's, there's something else going on there. Um, and all that said, um, you know, it's, it's, Surprising to me, not surprising, but you know, it kind of hit me as you were reading that that I really didn't want to hear Lovecraft today, um, and you know, I kind of had to make myself continue listening, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was a reminder of part of the problem of. Of valorizing Lovecraft instead of just simply analyzing and and you know sort of taking his word or his work at face value, um, in order to read Lovecraft, you've got to absorb a certain amount of his hate, and you've got to just kind of like detach yourself from realizing that that all of these words where he's talking about you know. Basically, you're the scum of the earth. You're the ooze, whatever. Um, you've got to acknowledge the fact that this man is talking about his fellow human beings with this language. As I sit here recording this right now, you know, in my city, uh, we are we are having repeated incidents of cops attacking peaceful protesters, um, and and. You know, you hear the protesters talking about the fact that the cops are saying these these hateful things to them and calling them names and so on. Um, and it doesn't really matter whether the the hate is coming in the form of modern language and profanity, or you know Lovecraft's very flowery, elaborate. Well, flowery is not really the word. Um, Ornate language. Um, It doesn't matter whether you dress up that same language with the the ornateness that Lovecraft is known for or not. Um, It's the same hatred and it hits the same way. Um, And I've never been an advocate of, you know, don't listen to, to, uh, hateful, uh, people don't listen to problematic creators, um, or don't read their work, um, you know, do what you can to like, you know, not give them extra monies to, to like further their hatred. Um, and Lovecraft Casey's dead. So, all right, it's fine. Um, but you know, I've, I've never been an advocate for like, don't absorb that, but come to it with you know, your 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 flak shields in place. Right. Um and if you don't have your flak shields, if your flak shields have been worn down by the the crap that you're living in reality, maybe it's not the best time to visit Lovecraft. Um just a
0: thought. Well and when you say how unwelcome it was to hear those words now, I also mm-hmm. think of this the critique the defenders of Lovecraft who say that was he was just a man of his time that you you mentioned earlier, and that it's just the racism of his time. But actually, another problem with that argument, other than the fact that that's not true, it was extreme, is that our time is extreme, like you're mentioning. Like if we were to uh, judge America based on its treatment of refugees and immigrants or black people who don't want to be killed while jogging, birdwatching, driving... Minding, mm-hmm. their, minding their own business in their own homes, or the, the epidemic of disappeared and murdered Indigenous women that don't even make the news. Um, it's not like Lovecraftian viewpoints are really that far. Uh, if you look at the rhetoric of the advisors like Stephen Miller in the White House and the the groups that he associates with, associates with, which embrace Nazi science and use a lot of the same language for immigrants that would yeah. be similar to that letter maybe not as ornate um but perhaps baroque in the in the, its own way i mm-hmm. guess I, I was hoping maybe you could you could talk about what has happened recently in the ss sff community around lovecrafting ideas around white supremacy especially since you were central to some of these battles um and this book it being in in one regard a similar battle but for for listeners, since people listen to the show who are very engaged with science fiction and fantasy, and other r- listeners to the show are are drawn to it for for poetry or for memoir. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way Lovecraft has been alive in in the science fiction and fantasy world, or at least the ideas in in coded ways have existed and and the battle that is has been happening?
1: You know, honestly, it's it's. You know, there. anybody that, that wants to know about this um, isn't going to need my summary. They're going to need to go and actually look at it because um, there's no way for any summary to kind of fully encompass it. it. It's the same thing that's happening in the wider world. Science fiction is not different from the wider world. It is a microcosm of, of, uh, you know, the English speaking world, which is the part of it that I'm familiar with. Um, so hell for all, I know this is happening in other language parts of science fiction. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's effectively the, the established status quo of science fiction has always been, um, racist, patriarchal, a bunch of other isms ists, um and the the world is changing the world has constantly changed um and as people uh, who are not cishet white dudes, um, or, or committed to the aesthetics of cishet white, white dudes, I guess, if you want to put it that way, because it's not just cishet white dudes. Um, but it's people who who don't have a problem with the absolute domination of cishet white dudes at the awards for decades. Um and who get upset when, for what, maybe three or four years, or or hell, five or ten years, uh, the wards get dominated by women? Um, you know, that's there's a there's a reactionary movement that exists within the genre. Um, many of them are are committed to trying to do whatever they can to undermine uh, the the systems that are trying to accommodate the change that exists within the genre. Um, And the changes are not anything really truly new. There have always been black people writing science fiction. There have always been women writing science fiction. Women have always been uh, the, the kind of backbone of the community, the organizers of conventions and things like that. Um, this is not a new thing. It's just that finally, uh, those of us that have always been here are starting to get recognition for uh, the work and the the creativity that we've done. Um, and there's, there's forces that don't like this change. They want the world to still be as it was, where basically all you had to do was be sort of you know, a little above mediocre and and you could achieve pretty well in science fiction. You could sell books, you could win awards, yada yada yada, um, as long as you looked a certain way. Um and the fact that the playing field was never level doesn't seem to be an issue to them. They were okay with the playing field being what it was. Um and, you know, the idea of trying to create a more level playing field, they find offensive. They're terrified of it. Um, they regard the people who are uh, creating things that they don't understand as, as with the same sort of abject horror that Lovecraft regarded the people of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their reaction is... Uh, harmful, but also very typical American. So,
0: well, m- maybe as a maybe as a, a counterbalance to Lovecraft's words, I, I'm just going to read a couple lines uh, for the pleasure of it from one of your Hugo acceptance speeches. This is the year in which I get to smile at all of those naysayers, every single <laughs> mediocre, insecure wannabe who fixes their mouth to suggest that I do not belong on this stage. That people like me cannot possibly have earned such an honor that when they win, it's meritocracy, but when we win, it's identity politics. I get to smile at those people and lift a massive, shining, rocket shaped middle finger in their direction. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of other people seem to. Well, it was
1: definitely cathartic to say. Yeah.
0: Well, I wanna, I wanna return to the book and the way that we move around New York City in this book as if two different versions of the city are are superimposed upon each other. Because this superimposition makes me think of it made me think of many things actually. I thought of Colson Whitehead's famous essay on New York where he says, you are a New Yorker when what was there before is more real and solid than what is here now. Hmm. And that question of different time periods and the role of memory also made me think of William Gibson's often repeated line, the future is already here. It just isn't evenly distributed. (laughs) But I also thought of China Mieville, his book, The City and the City with the superimposed cities. And I I thought of the many worlds interpretation in in quantum physics, which you cite in the book and which Ted Chang also likes to create whole stories from. But but the main thing I thought of was actually Ursula K. Le Guin, who I think mistakenly gets called a Newtopian writer, who I think more accurately could be described as having books that gesture towards the promise of a Newtopia, but while existing among all sorts of countervailing dystopian elements. Um, <laughs> I w- I've never
1: heard that. That's great.
0: I, I was hoping we could, we could talk about her most famous short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Amalus which was a thought experiment about what outsourced cost we are willing to accept to live in an utopia, how much suffering experienced by someone else are we willing to allow to have a great life ourselves. I was hoping maybe we could talk about it in relationship both to your novel, if you feel like there is one, and to the story you wrote in, in response to her story. Mm-hmm. But but first, do you do you feel like there's a connection between that story and the superimposed worlds in in the city we became.
1: if there is it's not a thing I'm gonna notice um, you know the people people do reviews and analysis on my work and they frequently discover things that I, didn't notice, and then I'm like, "Oh, wow, cool! All right." Oh, so that's what I was doing, um, and um, so I, I leave it to the scholars and the the reviewers to figure out kind of where those connections tend to be. But um, in terms of the short story that I wrote uh, in response to the ones who walk away from Omalas, I wrote a, a story called "The Those Who," oh, crap, the ones who stand and fight. I almost forgot the name of it. Um, And, uh, the ones who stand fight. Um, and it it was also a thought experiment on a couple of levels, um, possibly too many levels. Um, I will leave it to people to read it and decide whether it is worthy of speaking back to uh, the great Le Guin. Um, but basically I realized, um, somewhere along the way that I was actually having difficulty imagining a world without bigotry. um, And I'm a science fiction writer, among other things. Uh, I I should be able, if I can't figure it out, then then how can I expect other people to to project that vision, to move towards that vision? If we can't speak about it, if we can't envision it, then how do we work toward it? Um, And so um, I emulated the style of the Omalas story, um, tried to make it just simply kind of like a, a... a, a utopian ideal, um, or, you know, speaking of it as like, okay, can we talk about this as a possible utopian ideal? Um, and centering on the, the same notion that I think Le Guin decided to tackle, which is, um, you know, you, you can't have this beauty without some kind of struggle You can't have this kind of progress without some kind of struggle. Um, And so if that is the case, if we are indeed stuck um, as a species, as a people, whatever you want to call it, if we are indeed the kind of society that's going to have to fight um, to make sure that we get this utopian future where all are included and, and everyone has opportunity and hope and food and shelter and so on, um, then, at least let us focus um let's let's be planful about it, let's be meaningful about it um and instead of you know choosing a, a random innocent child to be the focus of that suffering, which um obviously leguin is 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 um, symbolizing uh western society, capitalist societies. Um, tendency to literally devour children in order to, um, you know, kind of further its own uh, progress, you know, think about every, every sweatshop in Southeast Asia, that's producing our Nikes, um, or whatever. Um, You know, we, we have to kind of acknowledge the fact that, you know, if, if this is somehow part of human nature. If human nature eventually kind of trends toward um, entropy, if you want to put it that way, um, then let's at least try and and harm only the people that are harming others, um, you know, if that's going to be the focus of it. And I'm babbling at this point. I, I prefer p- for people to read my writing than for me to try and interpret it for yeah. them.
0: Well, I mean, the reason I thought of the story in the novel was because even though this mm. isn't central to the novel—at least not the first book—we do learn that millions die in other universes every time a city is born here. Which, mm. which made me—it, I mean, obviously that was disquieting to learn, even though because for the rest of the book you're feeling very much on the on the, um, the the side of of the city being born, but then you pause at at, at this question of cost. But do, mm. but do you but do you feel like um do you feel like the ones who stay and fight your story do you feel like it's a corrective on Le Guin's the way Delaney's Triton was a a crit- response and critique to the dispossessed or or does it feel more closer to fanfic in a way like are you writing in the Amalus tradition?
1: It is it is meant to be a pastiche, um, which is why I tried to emulate Le Guin's style for that that story. Um, whether it is whether it is fanfic or whether it is uh, an overt response, I, I again will leave to the scholars to decide. Um, it's just simply a story that I needed to tell. Um, in, in the city we became, or in the, I guess, the mythos of the Great Cities Trilogy, um, and again, there's pieces of this I can't discuss, I, I already framed cities as living entities. Living entities eat to survive. Mm. Um, living entities, at least in our reality, consume yeah. other li- living entities in order to, to become what they are. Um, and sometimes that's horrific. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to leave it that way. That doesn't mean that there aren't ways to mitigate the horror of, um, our consumption of other life. Um, and even the vegans out there are eating living plants. Um, we've, we've begun to realize that trees talk to each other, bunches of other things like that. There basically is no way, um, to exist in this world without causing harm. Um, and that's an acknowledgement that I simply wanted to do. If I'm gonna posit that cities are living entities, then living entities do harm and cities do harm in yeah. real life. Um, you know, we, we are beginning to understand that, uh, you know, even, uh, sort of pre-industrial cities, uh, had such a negative impact on their environment. When we find the sites of old cities that used to exist, um, we find, you know, kind of areas around them where there were, um, uh, sort of denuded of trees or or uh, extinction events, you know, kind of minor scale ones until we hit the industrial era. Um, we find that cities change the weather around them. Um, you know, there, there have been a number of illustrations of how um, prevailing air currents passing over, say, Atlanta, Um, uh, you know, basically change into something entirely different. The city of Atlanta acts almost like a mountain Mm. um, in its impact on the rest of the the area around it. Um, And so, you know, I I just wanted to acknowledge that the fact that if you've got a living entity, that living entity is doing things that living entity, the, the act of life um, is dependent on the deaths of others in a lot of ways. Um, And, we as thinking entities can choose to direct that. Um, that is a thing that I want to explore. We, we choose whether we want to eat ethically sourced meat. Um, I made the, the the decision many years ago to try and be a local vor as much as possible, um, and and not eat stuff from you know feedlots or um, stuff that got shipped halfway across the planet, requiring like oodles and oodles of fossil fuels to get to me. Um I try to eat from small family farms when I can. It's more expensive and it means that I eat less meat and that's good. Um you know, I I, I ain't got it in me to be a vegetarian, but um I I can at least try and make sure that uh, the animals that I do eat weren't mistreated um to the degree that I can. I um, mean these are choices that sentient entities should be making. Um and that's something else I'm going to explore. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, f- forgive me for asking one one last Le Guin oriented question. Um, she died just right before our book together was supposed to come out, and so yeah. right when our book did come out, um, I was asked for maybe eighteen months to write and think about her in various contexts for various publications, and it was it seemed very natural to me when I discovered the Wired magazine article that that place the two of you in conversation and discuss the way you had placed yourself in conversation with her. And I Mm -hmm. see, I see connections. Um, But my last question that I wanted to raise maybe in, in, in her presence was around uh, imagination and the speculative, because when I was watching the American masters PBS series on her, One Mm. of the fascinating things about it is how much her own work over time is a corrective on her own previous work Mm. uh, on the ways Mm. that it failed to imagine as far as it could have. So, for instance, at the beginning, she had mainly male protagonists and wrote hero-oriented stories, which she moved farther and farther away from over time. And similarly, Mm -hmm. if she could rewrite Left Hand of Darkness, she probably wouldn't have used male pronouns for as signifiers for gender-fluid people. And, mm. she, and she herself has said the Earthsea books as feminist literature are a total complete bust because she, <laughs> co- because she couldn't reach deep down and come up with a woman wizard at that point in her life. Mm-hmm. And it, it just made me wonder, I have no idea if, if that in any way resonates with you, but it did make me wonder about your experience at the time of the various attempts to squash the rise of, of non-white writers within science fiction and fantasy you talked about one blog that reached out to just say hey if you're a person of color who's into science fiction and fantasy can you speak up so we can get a head count and y- you were under the impression that there that people mm-hmm. like you were super rare that w- they were like unicorns and and the post of the blog was even called the wild unicorn herd check in but mm-hmm. it, but in fact the numbers were huge and i mm-hmm. and i wondered about I guess I wondered about this self-perception of being alone or isolated, especially when the community at large seemed to also want it to stay that way. If you felt like that at any point hindered your ability to imagine to your full potential that, that part of the writing process has been working against that, against the absence of having lateral community or the depth of lineage that you should have had
1: okay there's there's a couple of things here that I wanna address. Um, one is that artists in and of themselves should be should be improving, should be growing and changing over the course of their lives, should push themselves beyond the the limits that they originally um, framed themselves for. And part of that process of growth means understanding what those limits are and realizing, that the world is different from what you may have been told it was. Mm. Um, and some of that is technological. Um, the advent of social media is one of the things that allowed fans of color to start seeing each other and realizing just how big of a presence we were. Um, you know, Before that, we'd all been we'd all been kind of siloed and had no real choice about that siloing because the institutions of science fiction and fantasy weren't particularly looking to elevate our voices. Um, and in fact, we're in a lot of cases, we're excluding our voices purposefully. Um, and so, you know, the Wild Unicorn Herd check-in um, was a, a live journal post from many years ago, uh, created by uh, a fan known as Deluxe Vivens, who unfortunately has passed away since then. Um, and, you know, she used the power of social media to kind of just hold up a mirror um, and and allow us to see the reality that we'd all been told was not true. Um, we'd all been told, you know, we were all like nerds of color were, have always been told that there's something strange about you. And that's because again, science fiction and fantasy is just a microcosm of America. America does everything it can. Well, in America, um, you know, obviously it exists beyond America. Um, but, uh, I'm speaking about America cause that's what I know. Um, but science fiction and fantasy in America is like the rest of the country in that it does whatever it can to kind of remind uh, uh, marginalized groups of people that they are isolated and alone and have no power. Um, even using a term like minority doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you look at humanity. Um, humanity as a whole is something like eighty percent people of color. Mm. Um, you know, probably more than that. Um, but you know, we're, we're constantly sort of told you're you're small, you're isolated, you don't need to have more of a say or more of a voice and because there's only a few of you and you don't matter. Um, and when you start to realize the the reality of the situation, when uh, Americans began to realize, no wait, we're 40 something percent of this country. We've always been here. We're the people that helped build it. Um, our blood is literally in the soil and in the case of the city we became under wall street, um, you know the the idea that we should not have a say in anything that we should not be visible in our media um is is ridiculous when you understand the reality of the situation and the reality of the situation for science fiction and fantasy is that there've always been black fans, there've always been black writers, there've always been marginalized fans and writers of whatever persuasion, and we've always been fairly large in number mm-hmm. um but there there has always been this, this narrative, this rhetoric, um, that, uh, that we are small and that we are powerless and that we should shut up. Um, and you know, that's the nature of art is that it evolves with the artist's understanding of the world. Le Guin did that. I am also doing that. All good artists have to, um, if you aren't telling the truth, if you aren't, if you aren't improving and changing over the course of your life, then you're not telling the truth about what what you're seeing around you. Um, you're in denial. Um, and and that's, yeah, you know, I mean that's not good art.
0: Yeah, and I I loved watching the sort of the the narrative of her own self interrogation over the course of her career. At least the way they summarize it in looking at her life, which feels to be like a, a life that that continues to. Push forward by looking back and and seeing where one hasn't been able to um, imagine as far as one could.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's she was a great artist. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, in an end of day, um, it, it is it is. Like I, I'm not a, a giant fan of Le Guin's novels. Um, I haven't read uh, probably most of them. Um, I like her short stories more than anything else. But what I really loved was her essays. When you know she got on blogdom, um, you know she she had a blog for many years where she was just literally like raining fire down upon the world. And you know that is what I want to grow up to be. Um, yeah, you know, and, and her speeches, uh, you know, kind of one of her most famous speeches was when, um, she, I believe won a national book award and she got up and used that speech to basically tell the entire book industry all about itself, Um, you know, she told Amazon representatives that you were trying to commodify art and that is just wrong and disgusting, um, that you have tried to, to homogenize and control a thing that you don't have the right or the power to control. I mean, and she just told them all about themselves. Um, that is the part of Le Guin that, um, her art does this. Her art obviously is, is, part of her voice, Um, but you know, just as with Lovecraft, Lovecraft's letters are one of the ways in which we begin to understand just how dangerous or just how pervasive his hatred is and his fear is in making his art as powerful as it is. Well, with, with Le Guin, her essays and her letters and her blog um, are how we begin to realize just how powerful, her willingness to change the world and speak truth to power um, is throughout her art. So,
0: yeah. Well, I, w- I want to return to this question of of representation. Um, in, in Lovecraft's essay, Notes on Weird Fiction, he says, fear is our deepest and strongest emotion and the one which best lends itself to the creation of nature-defying illusions. And I was and that's thinking...
1: That's what a racist would think. Yes. Yeah, but
0: it's also... <laughs> It's, it's interesting because this connection between fear and the creation of nature-defined illusions, it made me think of Claudia Rankine's Citizen and that line that is often quoted from it, because white men can't police their imagination, black men are dying. And Rankine goes on to talk about how the officer that killed Michael Brown said, quote-unquote, he looked like a demon. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like you do a lot of work in this book with the avatar of Staten Island. Not only as a white, the only white avatar is the white woman who's distrustful of otherness, um, who sort of reflexively and perhaps unconsciously thinks people with darker skin or people with deformities or people with wheelchairs are more more suspect or, or bad. But also, I think most fundamentally, she can't imagine a world where people who mean well can do any real harm. Which feels like a one way you could describe the violence of whiteness, but I I, mm-hmm. I wanted to I wanted to um, hear about some of your ways in which you navigate your desire for not causing harm or damage to communities that you represent. I mean, obviously, you're not worried about, or probably not greatly worried about your portrayal of this white woman from Staten Island, but you've you've given yourself this this narrative where you have all these avatars that represent complex communities, but then also at the same time have to be individuals. Um, and so I'm thinking of like, for instance, maybe the most extreme example, Hong Kong, um, mm. who's who seems at least in this book, and of course I give you the caveat that this is the first book of a trilogy, and I'm sure all of these things are going to get complicated but he seems like the character closest to a total dick and his, <laughs> his his city is even described as having a dick-shaped skyscraper or 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 paris which you say in an upcoming book will be it will be an asshole or insufferable um how do you balance how do you balance like this desire for sensitivity because i know you have sensitivity readers for for when you did your indigenous character and your south asian character uh, obviously not wanting to cause harm or damage, but then also you have these, you know, entirely complex cities, which do indeed have personalities, but, mm. but, um but also you have to, you have to reduce them to something also as a person.
1: First of all, I've never been able to visit Hong Kong. I wanted to, um, I still want to, I haven't been able to visit Sao Paulo, um basically as I started to plan trips to both places suddenly they elected fascist dictators or yeah. uh an uprising began and I you know it was just not a good time to travel so um, so, yeah, I'm obviously operating on stereotypes there. Um, in fact, I didn't really fully know what stereotypes existed of Sao Paulo. Um, I did have a sensitivity reader in that um, I spoke to a Brazilian woman about what do Brazilians think of Sao Paulo. And so I was kind of basing my stereotypes on on that. Um, and, you know, I didn't even know that people from Sao Paulo were called palistanos and so forth. And I'm probably mangling the, the Portuguese i hope i am not um, but uh you know so i didn't know enough about them to really give them a, a, a thorough or solid character but i mean it's actually relatively easy to characterize a city because everybody there's always going to be somebody that thinks that the city is an asshole um, right. <laughs> that a city is just inherently like a place of assholes there are so many people <laughs> out there who hate new york right. it's not even funny um and you know, like when when I when I do go and read reviews of the city we became, there's like always going to be like that that person out there who's like, well, I just hate the fact that New York thinks of itself as the center of the universe. New York is just you know full of shit and da 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 da, and that's part of its character. This is one of the things that makes cities what they are. That is part of the legend. There are people that hate the legend, mm. um. So it's not that hard to come up with the idea of of Hong Kong being rude as fuck. Um he's not a terrible person. <laughs> um, he's obviously on the side of the protagonist.
0: Good, he does point. good
1: things. Yeah. He's just sort of like I I yeah. <laughs> um, <to help> <laughs> um, ain't got yeah. no, so, no. to be friends with you
0: to no. help you. He certainly doesn't try doesn't try to be friends. Um have you re- have you I was curious if you'd read Open City by Teju Cole? No. Cuz that was another book that I that I love that I was thinking of reading your book, a book that I would, Mm -hmm. I would call one of the great New York books, but it's also a, it's also, I think one of the best books of fiction that enacts what intersectionality is through narrative. And Mm -hmm. it's a protagonist. He walks through New York and, Mm -hmm. and by what he sees and also by his blind spots, the history of America is, is sort of revealed through New York as the lens. And there's Mm -hmm. a way in which, as your book unfolds, we are also sort of unearthing stories that are in plain sight, but which go largely unseen at the same time. For instance, you've said that Manhattan, and I think this is a, this is a literal truth, and you've said that Manhattan is built on trash and blood. And mm-hmm. and the African burial ground that shows up— Well, wa-
1: Wall Street specifically, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, the African burial ground shows up in your book and in Teju mm. That Wall Street was— built on the bones of thousands of black and native and Latino workers who died and were buried on the spot. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, and Irish and basically lots of the, the early immigrants of New York died building the, the landfill, the, the foundations, the base that became wall Street. So yeah. You know? And they were buried in unmarked graves that were literally forgotten about yeah. for, for decades or centuries until they were, uh, began to be unearthed with a construction site that that suddenly discovered bunches of bones um, when they were building a new skyscraper, if I recall.
0: Well, another place that is significant in the city we became, but perhaps not that significant in most New Yorkers' minds, is Inwood Park. And I was hoping mm. maybe you could talk about Inwood Park itself and also the the rock within it that both... Maybe play an outsized role in in the city we became for good reason, but a smaller role in the minds of of people living their day-to-day lives in in New York City.
1: It actually had a relatively small role in the book, but I framed it as a place of power because um, part of the myth of New York, um, for those that haven't heard it, uh, is that uh, Manhattan Island was was purchased uh, from the local indigenous people for uh, what is it twenty six dollars worth of um, worth of beads and trinkets and uh, I think it's twenty six guilders actually um, worth of beads and trinkets like some tiny amount of money and then it got turned into this economic powerhouse by the colonizers that 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 did this. Um, and of course the, you know, the story is always more complicated than the legend makes it out to be, um, you know, at, at the core of it, the Lenape people who, who kind of had a guardianship of the Island. I mean, the Island had been used as a crossroads for lots of groups of people for many, many years, um, trading site, a bunch of different things. No one owned it. The whole idea was that, you know, you, you can, you can exist here for a while and we won't bother you too much, but you know, like how can you possibly own the crossroads? Um, which is what they, they seem to be. Um, you know, it it was just like, it was a fundamentally different conceptualization of how land and property and people should be used. And so, um, this deal was made at, uh, the tulip tree, uh, in Inwood Hill park, um and uh the the there's a rock or a monument on the site um with the word Sherokapuk on it and a description of um you know kind of the the deal between Peter Minuit, who was the governor of New Amsterdam at the time, um, and the people there. Um and so Manhattan, as he, you know, he's been in the city for like a whole few hours at that point. Um you know, is able to use that site for power because it is a site that is given power by that legend, um, and by the events that actually happened there. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what I, Mm. how I tackled that.
0: And it's also, uh, one of the last remnants of the original old growth forest, yeah. Of, of Manhattan, yeah, it Island. actually
1: is the only piece of it still left. Yeah, um, All of Manhattan used to be like Inwood Hill Park. Um, so just walking through that park is, I mean, and even then it's so manicured in some places, it's got little paved pathways all carved through it and so forth. So I mean, you know, it's it's an example, at least in small patches of the old growth forest that used to be there. But I mean, it's, it's been so thoroughly colonized that it's difficult to see. Um, but even then you can get an idea of kind of like what it was like. Um, and there's, there's, that's the nature of New York. New York is a bunch of layers upon layers of, of history buried and sometimes forgotten, Um, and geography, uh, that impacts our lives to this day, but sometimes is forgotten. You know, people, people forget that the, one of the reasons that the, the second Avenue subway has been promised, but you know, only relatively recently actually worked on, um, it's been promised for like basically my lifetime, um, but second Second Avenue used to be a river, and when you dig down deep enough in New York City, in in Manhattan, you hit that water table. Mm. You hit what used to be the river, and it's almost it, it's quite difficult to build there without like flooding and so forth. Um, and you know if the power of New York comes in its creation from the various groups of people that have inhabited it over time and put their layers of energy onto it. And those layers are building in a very, you know, theoretical physics-like way, Uh, you know, those are all many worlds of interpretation of history, um, then, you know, why not uh, use that as a source of power as well and a source of, of, of harm and danger and fear? You know, Manhattan uh, is a very charming young man, very handsome. Um, everyone that kind of gets to know him immediately feels comfortable with him, um, unless they are, um, suspicious people themselves who are like, why do I feel so comfortable with him? Oh, he, there's something else going on here, but, uh, cause Bronca does not like him immediately. <laughs> but, um... Uh, but Manhattan is super charming, super friendly. You know, seems to be very upstanding. Um, hits all the the notes for respectability politics with young black men. Um, he's light skinned. He's going to an Ivy League school. He doesn't curse. He dresses preppy. Da 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 da. Um, but he's also terrifying. Um, he's he's got. You know the 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 trash and blood that is the undergirder of Manhattan's true power um, is part of his personality, mm. um, and and it shows in various ways throughout the story. Um, and people realize that um, they they begin to realize that's a source of power for him, but it's also a source of threat. It's also something that that um, literally has subsumed his personality, um, and it's something that all cities have to watch out for. Um, the stereotypes are a source of power. The stereotypes are one of the things that make you what you are. But you've also got to fight those stereotypes if you want to be your own person.
0: Yeah. Well, I also love that you made Manhattan a newcomer, that Manhattan has just arrived in Manhattan.
1: hmm Yeah. I mean, that's that's such a quintessential part of the New York experience. And I say that as someone who wasn't born here. Um I lived here, I kind of jokingly say I'm like 50% New Yorker. Um, but I did I went to school in Mobile, Alabama. Um, you know, I spent every summer here growing up and like my preschool childhood here. Um, and then, you know, as an adult I live here now and have for oh, gosh, how many years? Like pushing fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, but I didn't. I'm not born and raised here. And there's aspects of New York City that are brand new to me, even though I've had so much time here. But you know, one of the aspects of New York's personality that I I have noticed as a newcomer is that it is so wholly welcoming to newcomers. Um, I spent eight years in Boston. And Boston is not a city that is welcoming to newcomers. Yeah. Um, and I say that as someone who tried to make Boston work because Boston was cheaper than New York. It's a beautiful city. I really liked it. Um, but Boston was not a friendly city. And Bostonians are, are, you know, in my experience, Bostonians are not super friendly people. Um, you know, I had Boston friends for whom I, you know, never went inside their house in the whole eight years that I was, was living there. Um, You know, they never had dinner parties, they never invited anybody over to just like chill and relax or whatever. Um, And I moved to New York and within like a week, I'd been invited to like two different house parties and Mm. there's a culture in New York that's constantly trying to reach out and grab the newcomers and pull them in and make them part of it. Um, New York is a greedy, grabby city um, and I want to, I'm going to sort of touch on that.
0: Well, thinking about these, these two realities or these two warring uh, stories of what New York could be that happens in your book, I was, I was wondering if you could talk about the warring mythologies between Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs, who you consider the anti-Robert Moses, <laughs> and, and how these, how these real-life figures inform the city we became
1: it's probably best if you look up both figures yourself and look at the details of them because um you know I don't I don't want to get kind of too deeply into contrasting the two because I've I've only read uh, Jacob's work I have not um read anything by Moses so I don't have a good understanding of um his ideology beyond his works. Um, but you know, it was, it was very clear in a lot of ways in the things that Moses proposed and so forth, that he was not, um, a giant fan of the diversity of cities any more than Lovecraft was. Um, you know, he proposed in a number of cases, changes to the, the city's parks that were harmful, um, that would have, um, you know, kind of turned like, say, battery park into uh, a highway and things like that, um, that basically did not have the same respect for how people operate in cities and how um, real community forms. Um, his theories seem to be informed more by uh, white supremacy and and controlling large groups of people, controlling people through architecture, through, um, design. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas Jacobs, her philosophy seemed to be much more, you know, you look at where people are going and you build things around those groups. You build things around how those patterns and those communities already develop, Um, So, you know, it's a good idea, uh, if you want to kind of really dig into that, uh, to read The Death and Life of Great American Cities, um, which is Jacob's book. Um, I have yet to read uh, anything by Moses. So, you know, like I said, I don't want to get too deep into his philosophy. Um, But look at what he did. Look at how he tried to do things and got blocked in a lot of cases, thank God. Yeah. Um, Because his choices would have made New York City a very different and probably much uglier place.
0: But even things that are very iconically New York now, like Central Park, we discover was, was built both to obstruct the movement of people of color, but also to destroy solidarity and and alliances between white groups and non white groups.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that wasn't Moses. That was kind of pre pre Moses, but he, he built on that. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's actually good to read a different book for, for that history. Um, uh Seneca Village is the, the part of New York that I'm talking about. Um, there used to be uh, in a neighborhood in New York where Central Park is now called Seneca Village, um, populated by free black people and uh, Irish people in the days when Irish people were not considered white. Um, and they lived together, uh, they worked together, they uh, fought uh, to to unionize and to work against the power establishment, which was mostly Cishet and Waspi uh, in New York, um, you know, descendants of British people and so forth, basically anything but Irish um and uh so they worked against the power establishment of New York and a really good book to kind of explore that is uh Noel Ignatiev's uh How the Irish Became White um where he talks about the fact that those power alliances those early power alliances between black and irish people in New York City um were such a threat to the city establishment that you know yeah central park um, got eminent domain away from the people of Seneca village, specifically because Seneca village was where, according to many of the city fathers, um, all those, those people were sitting around miscegenating and, uh, mm. producing these, these, uh, ambiguously black people that, uh. Uh, could not be easily classified and easily discriminated against um, and that was one of the the horrifying things to these folks so they destroyed Seneca village and built a park on top of it mm-hmm. um, and you know Moses continu- continued the tradition of trying to make that park um, inhospitable to the very people that it had, it had displaced yeah. um, and other parks in the city as well
0: well you've you've talked before about how as a teenager your father would give you a map and tell you to explore <laughs> a new part of the city. And that mm-hmm. for you, in contrast to, say, the provincialism of your Staten Island avatar, uh, avatar whose who's family and, her, and herself are very uh, wary of New York City, New York meant freedom, there's mm. also a map at the beginning of the book. One, like, <laughs> like in, in, in so many uh, fantasy books, there's a map in the beginning of The City We Became. And it's a map that you really can't fully parse until you've read the book, or at least mm. your way into the book and then return to the map. But one, mm-hmm. but one thing I notice is that on old maps, on maps before we had entirely mapped the world, Mm-hmm. Un uncharted territory would be marked with the phrase "Here there be dragons." <laughs> so that mm-hmm. that'd be a place where the only thing that really lived was our imagination. We'd never been there, or so we're imagining ourselves. Here there be dragons, but on your map, that phrase is right there, unknown territory on the land, right where we are. And, it's and on Long Island. It's on Long Island, <laughs> yeah. But perhaps it's an inversion. I didn't know. Like, is it if it was an inversion of the typical phrase? If perhaps the dragon is our ability to imagine ourselves forward into a better place, an utopian (laughs) aspiration, or perhaps the dragon is the dystopian monster. Either way, it doesn't take much imagination to see that we are fighting this battle right now outside your window and outside my window for two different futures. And I guess I wanted to end with anything you wanted to tell us about The process of writing book two of continuing this story into the future and how easy or difficult that has been to do while we're under quarantine for a global pandemic and now with the social uprisings happening to fight for a different existence than the one we've we've had up until now
1: i mean backing up a little bit um the, the, that was just a crack at Long Island. New Yorkers make jokes about Long Island all the time. Um, it, it is a reference in some ways to the fact that a lot of Long Islanders are New Yorkers who fled in the 70s and 80s um, as part of the big white flight from uh, integration. Um, as as New York schools kind of fought for... Um, You know, the the schools were like heavily segregated, just like the city itself, Um, just like America. Um, And as uh, New Yorkers in black communities fought to make sure that their schools got equal resources, equal time. um, There's a really good podcast I've been listening to uh, called the School Colors Podcast, um, which talks about the 1968 Brownsville uh, teacher strike. Um, and and just how terrible the schools were. I mean, they they were sending black kids to school for only half days because they were so overcrowded. That was the only way they could get all the, the kids in. So, of course, the kids in the black neighborhoods were literally getting half the education of the kids in white neighborhoods. Um, and the parents rebelled against this, and and as a result of those protests and those efforts to get... Um, to be treated just as equal people, those same kinds of protests we're still having now, um, a lot of wealthy or middle-class white New Yorkers fled to Long Island. And Long Island is now one of the most racist places in the city as a partial result. And mm. um, so that was really kind of what I was referring to with that. Um, that plus just New Yorkers gotta, gotta give Long Island a hard time. That's just the nature <laughs> of that beast. Um so, oh gosh, I forgot the latter half of what you were asking. Well, just I'm writing
0: this, this book. Oh, well, when we're talking write about double. This mess. Yeah. Uh, double. Honestly,
1: I'm struggling a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a plot laid out. Um, some of that plot has gotten jost by reality already. Um, so I'm going to have to redo the the outline for book three. Um, stuff that I had predicted would happen in the future of the story is happening right now. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's going to be interesting to kind of try and deal with. Um, I also had not planned on a pandemic. Um, people, uh, you know, keep pointing out the parallels between the, the infectious way in which the woman in white works throughout the city and, um, New York in a time of coronavirus. Um, and that wasn't, obviously it wasn't intentional. I wrote this book almost two years ago. Um, and, uh, of course no one expects the global pandemic. Um, right now I am writing very slowly. Um, I'm, I'm actually hoping to, to kind of just sort of get some space to, to back up and sort of look at everything that's happening in a big picture and process more, um, really before I get too deep and too much deeper into the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I have a deadline and I've got to meet that deadline, so I have to write a little bit um, in order to kind of get up to a point where I can finish it sort of within within the time that it's due.
0: I don't like to be late. Plus, you've so- you've put your your hooks in us at the end of the first book so much that everybody's on, everybody's um, on the cliff of anticipation. (laughs) Well,
1: that's good to know. (laughs) Um, but you know, the, the, the whole Trump presidency has been a test for science fiction and fantasy writers because all of the, the dystopian nonsense that, that we thought was too unimaginable, we are living,
0: um,
1: You know, well, scratch that. Let me not say unimaginable because obviously Octavia Butler um, envisioned a society crumbling under a a cartoonish demagogue who uses religion as a prop um, and has a slogan of make America great again. Um, you know, in in the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents, that was that yes. was. She figured that out back in the nineties. She saw that coming. Um, I sincerely hope things don't get as bad as Octavia saw. Um, the rest of us are just trying to keep up. So I'm doing the best I can.
0: Well, it was great having you on the show today, Nora. Yeah, thank you. We're talking today to N.K. Jemison, the author of the City We Became from Orbit Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of N.K. Jemison's work at nkjemison.com. Jemison adds a reading from Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of Great American Cities to the Bonus Audio Archive, joining bonus audio from Ted Chang, Carmen Marie Machado, Hanif Abdurraqib, Marlon James, Christina Rivera Garza, Laylee Long Soldier, Garth Greenwell, and many others. All of this and much more available to supporters of the show can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who tirelessly help make the show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo and Alisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Ladbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Ladbrog, is sapatita me, can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.